Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. In this episode, we share a conversation between Center for Politics director Larry Sabato and ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl that took place at the Center for Politics's 25th Annual American Democracy Conference. The conversation focuses on Carl's new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump and the End of the Grand Old Party, which provides new insights and reporting on Trump's time in office and the former president's continued impact on American politics, with implications if he were to return for a second term. We hope you enjoy the conversation, and you can find a link to purchase the book in the episode notes. We're thrilled to have you back. I'll never forget it. Uh, January 6th, 2021, which none of you will forget, but by accident, the Center for Politics had the dome room of the, of the, of, uh, the rotunda, and we had a long program, hours and hours long. We thought it was simply going to be an opportunity to send an online program to uh, as many Americans as wanted to watch about the incoming administration and the formality of the casting of the electoral vote. Little did we know, and we, we had uh, John, who was kind of busy that day, lined up for the evening. And while some others had to cancel on us, you know, Tim Kaine had this ridiculous excuse about being locked in a room in the Senate and they took his iPhone. Do you believe that one? I don't believe it. Uh, actually, it was true. It stunned me. But we, we missed out on some people. But John went out to the lawn of, of the White House. I was afraid he was going to be arrested. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and gave us a blow-by-blow of what had happened that day. And the whole country was stunned, but we were really <laughs> stunned. You know, in Jefferson's dome room, hearing about the near overthrow of the U.S. government. Who could have imagined something like that happening? And yet it did. It did. And Jonathan, what interests me, I'm going to start off with this. Um, you have written these three books, and uh, while they're fair, they're quite critical mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. Who could imagine that either? Imagine being critical of Donald Trump. And yet he continues to give you extensive access over and over and over again. Is it that he doesn't read? And we know that's true. He doesn't read and read his own book, The Art of the Deal, which he didn't write. Uh, is that it, or or is it that you have some mesmerizing impact on Donald Trump? Well, you know, I, I have known him since the mid-1990s, because I was a young reporter in New York at the New York Post, and he was a guy that I could, on a slow news day, call up. I mean, he'd always take the call. And, hey, you got anything, Donald? We got some space in the paper. He would find something. Um, never, it was never really particularly serious, you know. I never thought he was going to, I never talked to him about politics, for instance. Uh, but so he knew me. And look, I take seriously the idea that, that a reporter, you know, it is our duty to tr- strive to be objective in as far as we can be, to be fair and balanced, a phrase that Fox used to use but doesn't use so much anymore. Um, but uh, but was, was a tagline when, when no. Fox first came on, fair and balanced. And I liked it. That makes sense. They also said, we report, you decide. And I think that's exactly right. So I, from the very start, uh, of I covered his campaign in 2016, beginning in 2015, and, and at the beginning of the White House, I, mean, I believed that I was going to treat him fairly. Now, fairly doesn't mean like I'm 
I mean, fairly means factually. So I don't know if they're negative. Um, I mean, they're, if they're negative, it's because the facts are negative. And, but, but I think that he sensed that for me, and he knew that I was somebody uh, who had treated him fairly in the past. I was a familiar face out in the crowd. And he would say the nastiest and meanest things about me one minute, and then two minutes later, he'd say, that book was pretty good you did. You know, he actually treated me fair. Um, so, you know, I, 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 have a relation, I had a relationship with him. I mean, I don't, this one is, this is a much darker book. I mean, tell, and it's hard to say. Tell us about it. It's harder to say that it can be darker than betrayal. So I, basically this is um, three books. I, I didn't intend to write three, um, but I, I wrote the first one while I was covering the Trump White House because it was such an extraordinary experience. We had never seen a presidency like this. We had never seen a White House like this. There were a set of issues uh, that were u truly unique, I think, for, for the press. And I was, you know, again, the, coming in as the White House press, uh, or, or the, 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 um, the White House Correspondents Association uh, uh, president. So the challenges of covering a president who has literally declared you the enemy of the people, a traitor to your own country, um, who calls you the opposition party and, and other things that we can't say in, in mixed company, um, really just nasty, vicious, brutal attacks, and yet you still want to cover the guy fairly. Uh, and it set up a, a, a series of interesting challenges. Different reporters had different approaches to this. Some went like, you know, toe to toe, and okay, and, 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 and made it a, a little bit, in my opinion, too much about them. Um, I tried to keep it as straight, but call out the facts as they were. So I wrote that book, Front Row at the Trump Show. My point was, what's it like? It wasn't a takedown on Donald Trump. It certainly wasn't a laudatory uh, piece. But what was it like to be at the White House at this moment in American history? And then January 6th happens. And um, I had actually signed the contract to write the second book on January 4th. Mm -hmm. I had a different title, which I someday I'll tell you. Um, no, but, do it now. Everybody's <laughs> now that you brought it but, up. But I, it, was, it, was, it was primarily based on what had happened in, you know, the idea of what had happened in 2020 uh, with COVID, with that insane election, and with Donald Trump's in efforts to overturn the election. Remember, January 4th is when, so I, I, we hadn't gotten to January 6th, but I, you know, what, what I saw was him losing the election, not just in November, uh, but losing it day after day after day, all of the court challenges, all of his efforts to get local Republican leaders in the contested states uh, to decertify legitimate election results in their states. Those efforts all failed. The effort to get me members of Congress to overturn the election, you know, it was clear it hadn't happened yet, they hadn't met, but it was clear that was gonna fail. And then ultimately the, the effort to, to get his vice president to overturn it. So that, so that was, an, I wrote that book to document the history of what I saw as the biggest betrayal of American democracy uh, by a political leader of any kind, but especially a president of the United States. And I went and I talked to everybody around him, including him, multiple interviews, and I documented, you know, I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a brutal portrayal uh, because those the facts were, were brutal. But this is darker still than that because this is a look at what happened 
after he left the White House and a look ahead to what it would be if he returned uh, as president again. And once again, I think it's a very important fact. I, I just did an interview with Brett Baer on Fox, actually, uh, on this that's uh, supposed to air tomorrow. Um, I haven't done the math on this, but at least 90% of the people that I talked to for this book are Republicans. The vast majority of them are people who served Donald Trump, who supported Donald Trump, many of whom Donald Trump put in very high positions of power and authority and responsibility. And those are the stories, that's where this comes from. This is not a screed from his opponents. This is a factual portrayal of what Donald Trump has done since those dark days uh, before and immediately after January 6th uh, and, and, and what it would look like if he came back. Well, uh, you're right, uh, this, is, this is dark. Uh, but it's also accurate, and I hope that eventually Americans will really get it. It's, uh, it, it's a frightening prospect, and I say that again as somebody who, for years, as you know, also tried to do the fair and balanced thing. Yes. You get to a point where you just can't tolerate what's going on, and you realize it's going to get much worse. Your first, object, your first <laughs> obligation as a reporter is to the truth, and... I, I believe that I, in, every, in all my reporting, have strived to be fair. But I know that my work is going to be judged in this period. People aren't going to say 10 or 20 or 50 years from now, were you fair to Donald Trump? They're going to say, did you tell the truth and did you tell it with absolute clarity? Well, one place where you gave absolute clarity and where you also backed up what you've been saying from somebody who was in... Uh, let's just say a, a decently high position, not somebody who was buried in the bureaucracy and you couldn't, uh, couldn't identify this individual, understandably. Sometimes reporters have to do that. It's the only way they can get the information they need. Uh, and this was, according to your own description, a senior, not a junior, a senior official in the Trump White House who, in discussing Trump with Jonathan for this book, and it's in this book, said, at least in part, he lacks any shred of human decency. The, the, the man was talking about Trump, not me, just to be no, clear. No, <laughs> clear. no it's, okay. we know you. You have several shreds. Good, I've good, seen good. Okay. You have several shreds right, of human right. decency. He lacks, Trump lacks, any shred of human decency, humility, or caring. He is morally bankrupt, breathtakingly dishonest, lethally incompetent, and stunningly ignorant of virtually anything related to governing, history, geography, human events, or world affairs. It's not finished. We're not finished yet. And this is a senior official in the Trump administration. No liberal, right? No. Very conservative. Continuing. Conservative Republican to this day, yes. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and to the rule of law. Other than that, is there anything bad about him? Or so so let, me, let, me, let me give you context on this, because this is important. This is, made, this is a very senior official in the West Wing, 
who served in the Trump White House for over a year. I can't tell you the exact amount of time because you can start figuring it out because people came and go uh, pretty with some frequency. This individual was there for more than a year, um, had daily contact uh, with Trump. So this isn't, you know, th there was that whole anonymous who came out, turns out to be Miles Taylor, and he was a guy that worked at Homeland Security. No, no, this is somebody who was with Trump virtually every day for more than a year. Um, had a position of, 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 of seriousness and importance in that White House. And I had been interviewing him for this book, a series of, of conversations, as I did with many people who, who worked in that White House and people who, went, who were with Trump after he left. Um, and this, so this was, a, this was a kind of follow-up interview. And it, it, I called him right after Jack Smith had... Uh, put out the indictment on the classified documents case that detailed, in exquisite detail, uh, not only the way Trump had taken these documents from the White House, their sensitivity, and the carelessness with which he handled them, but also the ways in which he had obstructed justice um, and tried to prevent uh, uh, first the National Archives and then the, 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 the Department of Justice from getting these documents back. So this person, as I called, and just wanted to get your, you know, just reaction to, to, to this latest thing, said, I was so, he told me, I was so infuriated when I read that, that I went to my computer last night and I wrote, you know, a note to myself about it. And I said, really? Well, what did you write? Could you share it with me? And uh, this person shared, so this is, this is what this person wrote, took down and wrote. And you may ask, well, why didn't he put his name to it? Um, which is a good and very fair question. Um, first of all, this is not somebody who has come out publicly against Donald Trump. So it's not one of the kind of usual suspects that have been out there. Um, it's not somebody who is, it's somebody who has basically checked out of politics and said that the primary reason why he could not put his name to this or any comment to me, this person's name does not, you know, could not appear in this book, uh, you know, anything on the record, because fearful of the retribution that he would face from Trump and from Trump's allies, and not just him, but his family. Um, and we can get to that too, because that's a very real concern and fear, and we've seen people pay dearly uh, for having the temerity to cross Donald Trump. You've had one of them here. She is a backbone made of titanium, and that's Liz Cheney. And she has, you know, she was on a track to be Speaker of the House, and she ended up ultimately not even able to win a Republican primary in her home state of, of Wyoming. Okay. Now she's up for it, and she wouldn't take back a thing that she's done. Uh, not everybody is willing to, you know, put their lives and their families all on the line. I mean, death threats, all of it. But, but this, is, this, is a, this is a serious individual, and it gets to something. It's not one person. It gets to what I said. Remember, more than 90% of the people I spoke to for this book, Republicans, most of them at one point close to Donald Trump, most of them hired by Donald Trump at one point or another, is that the most searing criticisms of Trump have come not from the Nancy Pelosi's of the world, although she's <laughs> you've got a few of her own, yeah. uh, but from the people that have been closest to Trump, the people who have seen him 
close up and know what it's like when he's in a position of power and authority. Uh, and that's an example of that. John, you covered him throughout his first term. Mm -hmm. Some people think, well, um, he learned things in the first term, and so he'll be a, I can't even utter these words without retching, a better president in the second term. Uh, but others say that, uh, in fact, what he learned from the first term is that he wasted a lot of it putting establishment Republicans in high office that he couldn't depend on to lie, cheat, and steal for him uh, during the term and, and while the votes were being recounted. Uh, in the second term, he might be inclined or would very likely be inclined to appoint people who are complete puppets and will do exactly what he wants or are already crazy and oriented to doing all these things anyway. Where this, do you stand? I mean, this is, this is a major theme of, of, of this book. Um, look, he will be better in some sense. He does have a sense of, of how things work to a degree. By the way, let's not exaggerate that. Uh, one, one little anecdote from the Trump because some of this goes back to stuff I learned from the, it's not all post-presidency, there is stuff from, you know, to kind of tell the story. Um, I've got a chapter called Team of Sycophants. You know, Abraham Lincoln had a team of rivals. Donald Trump had a team of sycophants. The, the, the first cabinet meeting, uh, it, it, they, they went around and all talked <laughs> about how, they, you know, how the dear leader was, uh, w w was so wonderful. But even the people around that table who paid homage to the great man, um, ended up, many of them, um, breaking fabulously with Trump and, 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 and saying uh, things about him that, uh, you know, again, that would make Nancy Pelosi uh, blush. Um, but he f didn't know, have any idea of what he was doing when he came in. There's a story in the book about um, he had a meeting with, with President Xi of China, uh, one of these, you know, uh, bilateral meetings, and you've seen, you've seen these meetings. You have the American side on one side of the table, the Chinese side on the other, you know, and they each have their their earpieces in to get the simultaneous translation. And uh, they had carefully gone over with Trump to prepare him for this present meeting with President Xi. There were a whole series of, of meetings, and Trump goes into the meeting and starts just spouting off stuff that has nothing to do with what they were going to do. Uh, you know, I don't know, talking about how much Mar-a-Lago is worth or something. Uh, you know, not n nothing of any substance at all. And um, this person was so distraught by this that he turned up the translation, the Chinese, because you could switch it, American to English, English to Chinese, turned up the Chinese translation so he couldn't to, to, to tune Trump out. This is a member of his delegation. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of thing. I mean, wasn't, wasn't, so there wasn't a lot of competence um, in that first, but there were people who tried to prevent Trump from doing damage to himself in some cases and to his party and to the country in other cases. People who found ways to kind of manage and massage him, take what he wanted at the orders, but then maybe stick him over here and say, what about this, Mr. President? You know, they found ways Shiny to- Shiny object. You know, yeah. um, and, and, and there were people like John Kelly, his, his third chief of staff, uh, who, who did this. I, I, I go kind of chapter and verse and betrayal on some of, some of the very specific ways in which he wanted to go to war with Venezuela at one point. 
Um, and they, you know, uh, Kelly did some pretty extraordinary things to make sure that particular order never made it to the Pentagon. Now that's dis, I mean, I mean, that is defying the orders of the commander in chief, thank God. But, but that kind of stuff happened. Bill Barr refused uh, Trump's orders to use the power of the Justice Department uh, to, to help overturn the election. Um, uh, you know, his, his White House counsel, uh, uh, Don McGahn and, and Pat Cipollone, kept on saying, you can't do that, Mr. President. It's illegal. We can do this. We can do that instead. Uh, you know, uh, they're, 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 his, his attorneys general, his, you know, not just Barr, but, but you know, Jeff yes, Sessions sir. early on refused to, you know, fire uh, the, uh, the, the special counsel investigating uh, Russian interference in the election. You know, all of this. So Trump, that infuriated him, and he finally realized that these people were kind of, you know, reining him in. So at the end of the Trump administration, he appointed the single most loyal person in that entire White House to him, the guy that carried his bags, John McEntee, a guy who, who, who came to work with him in his 20s and was just whatever you want, Mr. President. He made that guy the, what they called the director of what they called the Presidential Personnel Office, PPO the most important human resources department in the entire federal government, responsible for hiring and firing 4,000 uh, uh, political appointees in the executive branch from cabinet, you know, from the secretary of state, you know, to the uh, director of national intelligence and, and, and on down. Uh, he put him in charge of that. And, and McEntee went about conducting basically loyalty tests to find out who was loyal and who wasn't. Now, he didn't have much time because this was the end. This was the last term and it was COVID. But after the election, he really started doing things, firing uh, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, who refused to uh, invoke the Insurrection Act to bring active duty US forces to put down uh, unrest on American streets during the George Floyd protests. Um, he you know, went through and fired all those people and started to get make sure they were loyal to, loyal to this place. Well, now, a second Trump term starts there. Exactly. And you know, those people who tried to keep him in line with varying degrees of success won't get in the door. The first test will be loyalty. One of McEntee's lieutenants um, described this and said, you know, it's because they have this project. You've probably heard of it, Project 2025. It's, Google it's, it. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's out of the Heritage Foundation, which used to be a pretty serious operation. Used to be. Um, and it's, it's to set the agenda for the next Republican president. Of course, it's for Trump. And um, part of it is, is, is the personnel, you know, who they would put in. And, and, and so one of McEntee's lieutenants, McEntee's advising this. Um, he's now a little older now. He's in his 30s. Um, um, Maturity. Uh, and I uh, uh, said, look, you're talking about how you hire a good person for your administration. Do you want people that are good on policy, that agree with your agenda, all that kind of stuff? And he said, you know, the funny thing is, you can teach policy, but you can't teach loyalty. So we're hiring for loyalty. And then we'll worry about the policy later. The first question is, will you obey and do carry out the wills of the man? Of Donald Trump from day man. one. Yep. 
Right. He won't be wasting two and a half years as he did in his first term, which is yep. bad news for all of us if he actually uh, gets into office. Wholly apart from philosophy or ideology or what you think ought to be done on immigration, we're talking about... There's actually very little philosophy and ideology in this. Yeah, it's about control. Yeah, it's, it's about just control. all about control and power. That's all it is. And it's... I want to ask you, I want to go back to... January 6th for a minute, because it's so critical to understanding what Trump may do in a second term. To what degree did you and other members of the, the White House press covering him daily and having great contacts in the building, to what degree did you really sense that there would be a coup attempt as opposed to just a demonstration? Uh, you know, I'll be totally honest with you, I was absolutely shocked that it turned out that way. Um, for one thing, there were a couple of, of demonstrations that happened earlier. There was December 12th, right? The one uh, in Washington, that, which, which featured a whole cast of, uh, of, of the most extreme characters, like Michael Flynn was there and, uh, and, and, and company. Um, and I was out on the streets for that. There were some clashes between Antifa and, and Trump, you know, fanatical Trump supporters. Uh, some people got hurt, but it was like, it was pathetic in terms of the number of people. And I was like, okay, I mean, this is not really turning out too much. And also when the states each had to get together to certify their electoral votes on December 8th, there were protests, you know, in, in Lansing, Michigan, there were protests out in Arizona. There were protests at the various state capitals. And they were pathetically small. There wasn't much and there was no violence and all that. So I thought it was ending with a petering out. Um, and I was totally wrong, first of all, just by the, the, the size of, of, the, uh, of that contingent of Trump supporters that came into town. Um, and then the thing that really struck me immediately, even before the violence was, uh, took place, but just that sheer movement of people up to the Capitol, was I was looking out at the crowd and I was seeing all these people carrying flags. And that's, I mean, I was going to do a lot of parades and protests and patriotic things and they were carrying, they weren't American flags, they were Trump flags. No. This was not a protest for American values it was a protest for Trump values. I mean, look, look at the pictures. I mean, there are some people that had American flags. There are some people that had Confederate flags. We can know about that. But, there, but I mean, you know, th this was by and large like a, it was all about Trump. It was all about a man. So I was shocked and horrified. I had a series of conversations that day. When I talked to you, I was at the White House because I, I went to the White House once. You know, I wanted to figure out what the hell he was doing. That was my, during that period, like, where's the president? By the way, in, in this book, I have a, an email that I finally sent, it was one of like many, many emails, but it was a culmination uh, to, that I sent to Kaylee McEnany, you remember her? Oh, yeah. the, the White House press secretary. You know, I told you I dealt with 14 of them, right? I think she was sure. number 14. And, um, and the subject line is, note to the National Archives. Didn't know the archives would become a story and all of this, but I know that presidential records, including emails to officials, go to the National Archives. They're eventually released. What, the first round is in five years? Is that yes, what it is? Um, 
So, or become available to, for FOIA requests and whatnot. So, and it, note to the National Archives, and, I, and, I said, and it was sent to her. And I said, let this email be an official documentation that I have sent dozens of emails, text messages, and I have made several phone calls to the White House press secretary on this incredibly pivotal time in our nation's history as there is a, you know, an insurrection up on Capitol Hill and the white, and she has not responded once. I mean, Incredible. you couldn't find out. So not only was there not, was the president completely MIA while, while this was going on, his staff were completely MIA. Well, that's frightening. And the that's real, why I called you because I couldn't talk to you know. Yeah, you couldn't tell. Well, sure, yeah. I was I was last on the list, but I'm glad I was on the list. That's okay. No, it was last. it was just it was so revolting. And and I, I write the, the the in the conclusion of this book, which is which is the hardest thing I've ever written. And I, I did the audio book on this, and when I and when I and when it came time to read it, I, I it took me it was hard to get through without without seriously just kind of breaking up because because what that what that symbolized. I've had the great privilege um, to be to do the job of, of my that I've wanted to do since I was in like fifth grade to be a reporter and to cover world events. And I spent years as a reporter in 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 con covering Congress, um, going into that building. And and I, it never once was I not in awe. You know, walking in, looking at that dome, and having a chance to go. No matter how. Sometimes the stories could be crummy and the individuals could let you down. But just, just knowing that I was there and had an opportunity to see you know, American democracy in action and then to do the same thing as I became a White House reporter, sort of the idea of seeing those people trample into that building, breaking through, shattering glass, um, you know, marring the... Uh, 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 breaking into the Senate floor and rummaging through the desks of the senators... Um, you know, the, the, those desks are, and I've been on the floor of the Senate just a handful of times because they don't allow us measly reporters to go there unless there's a reason. But I, I've, you know, been, been on that Senate floor and I'm like, this is like, it's sacred. both amused, it's sacred ground. Yeah. And, and each one of those desks, there's, there's a record of, of which senators have held, have, have sat in those desks. And you know, for they, they, many of them put their initials in. That there was the, the original doorkeeper. You know this, uh, Isaac Bassett, who was in charge of kind of keeping the records for a while, would go through and erase the initials once the senators left because it was because they were tar You know, now of course it's a great it's a great honor. Thing. But um, but to see those people, rum you know, rummaging through there and leaving a threatening note to the vice president on the uh, on the presiding officer, this was horrifying to me. Well, John, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go off on no, no, that. Uh, well, we're interested in that. Although, uh, I think to balance that, they were just tourists. They were, yeah. I, I think that's become yeah. increasingly and, and, obvious. And that is, that's another reason for, that was a, a reason to write betrayal, but I didn't think, I didn't anticipate that the revisionist history would go so insanely off track. I mean, it was already starting a little bit, but with it, I mean, the idea that, People witnessed this with their own eyes. These were people that were on the, the, the House floor barricading the doors to keep the mob from getting in. And hiding. Getting, getting prepared to, you know, a couple of them, like, like uh, Mark Wayne Mullen and, and, uh, and Troy Nels and these guys, who, who they, 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 
they broke off, you know, the hand sanitizers were there because it was COVID. They broke the, the stanchions the, so they would have a, a thing to fight back against the mob. These guys knew what was going on. And now some of the same people that were there are saying it was no big deal? Well, they're worried about the retribution, which is coming. As, as Trump, I mean, Trump has been honest about it. If he's ever been honest about anything, and there isn't a long list, but he's been honest about the fact that he is going to seek retribution, probably in some illegal ways. Uh, but, but beyond that, what's, what's truly shocking is how few people have been willing to speak out, even those who are retired and are out of politics. Um, just to mention, uh, Liz was here, yeah. Liz Cheney was here on Monday doing CBS uh, Sunday Morning, which is co coming up on this Sunday, about her new book. And what, what I thought was so fascinating was uh, George W. Bush, who, remember, her father was Bush's vice president. He was out of politics completely. He hated Trump. All the Bushes hated Trump. <laughs> Trump screwed George P. Bush in Texas, among others. Okay, I mean, there were a lot of reasons. And Bush never said a word except to Liz, he wrote, there's been a great deficit of courage in this country, referring to Trump. Yeah. Uh, but you are the exception. Keep it up. And he signed it 43, you know, his number of the presidency. Yep. Where was the public statement? Where was the public statement from all of these people? Where? I'm asking yeah, you. No, no, it's it's a really good point. And, and I, I, I'll tell you, the calculation that a lot of them have made, and, and I haven't talked to George W. about this, but I guarantee you it's the calculation he made, is a feeling that, it, that, that not only would it not have an impact, but it might backfire. Because Trump made an asset out of the fact that he had... Uh, uh, you know, that, 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 that he had angered the Bushes. I mean, I remember I did an interview with, with Trump in 2014 before, you know, almost a full year before he came down that escalator. Um, and he said, we've had enough Bushes. This is before he got in. He's like, because Jeb, yeah, was, Jeb was, was in there. Was, yeah. um, so I, I, I think, but I mean, come on, you're the former president of the United States. Come out and and tell us what you think. Um, I mean, so many of those who did saw that their words had very little impact and saw themselves effectively thrown into political exile. I mean, there were some. I yep. mean, well, you know, one of them was Rick Perry, uh, who called uh, Trump a cancer on conservatism. Didn't work out so well. So, you know, within a year, he was a full-on Trump supporter. He embraced cancer. Served in his cabinet. I mean, he. I mean, you go back and look at that. You can Google that too. That was one of the most powerfully anti-Trump uh, statement. This was Perry. It, it's no secret, although it seemed like it at the time that he ran for president in 2016, um, and uh, didn't didn't go very well. And when he and when he, and when he dropped out, he gave this in, this incredibly you know powerful speech of the dangers of Trumpism, and then he became as blindly subservient to him as, as just about anybody. You'd think that conscience would have an impact. But that's not the, you're, you, I'm sorry, to yeah. but, but, you had, but you're asking what the people that, that, that stood back who knew this and just remained silent. And I, I don't have a good answer to that. I, I conclude with a, I'm going to say, tri yeah, tribute to those who did have the courage to stand up because there are a number of them. Liz is obviously one of them. Romney. Um, 
Kinziger. Yeah, but 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 there there are there are people like Rusty Bowers, who was the Republican Speaker of the House in Arizona, as conservative a guy as you can f possibly imagine, um, who simply refused to break the law when Rudy Giuliani and Trump himself asked him, you know, just decertify that election result in Arizona, change it, you know, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter what the vote said, and he refused. And this guy, his life was turned upside down, and again, he lost a Republican mm -hmm. primary, and he's now. You know, out of office, he was the Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House in in, in Arizona, and he's never wavered. And, and I've I've been out there twice to see him in Arizona. I've covered him when he testified before the January sixth committee. Just a good, decent human being who did not hesitate to do the right thing. And that's the model. Of course, it's all too many didn't take that model. And people like that are leaving office. Some of them were defeated, but so others are saying it's not worth it, and they're Senator leaving. Cassidy is not yeah. running. I mean, you've got. Romney. Exactly. Uh, a storm is coming, and we've got a good meteorologist here, and you'll be meteorologist too once you read this. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.